Um, we're going to jump straight in. I feel like pretty much most of what I was going to share today has already come through in the beginning of the meeting, so I can probably just say page one and go home. So <laughs> thanks, dudes. Um, today's title um, is From Unclean to Daughter, Letting the Grace of Jesus Transform Us When We Seek, When We Suffer, When We Share, and When We Strive. We're currently in the midst of a series entitled Transformed by Jesus, Ordinary Encounters with an Extraordinary God. So far, we have heard of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, or rich youngster, as Matt put it, with Zacchaeus the tax collector, with a paralyzed man, and with a religious man. Today, we look at his encounter with a woman, specifically a woman with an issue of chronic bleeding. Now, spoiler alert, this woman was not struggling with bleeding from her big toe for 12 years. She was most likely struggling with menstrual bleeding, and I fully realized that just with the mention of the word menstruation, I have probably lost 70% of the men in this room. As you awkwardly look at your smartphones and look down at your feet. But I appeal to you guys, bear with us, okay? Just as the previous encounters had application for both men and women, so too this, this one. It's not because of who brings the word, it's because of who the word is, Jesus Christ in his manifest flesh. And if that's not enough to keep you engaged, I promise I'll be talking about beer later on, okay? okay. So one thing that I really struggle with, and you can put up the next slide um, with the cartoon, is letting people help me. I am fiercely independent and self-sufficient. Deborah Sudworth, I'm not looking at you. Um, and oftentimes, to my detriment, I decline help when actually I really need it. So, do we have... Okay, there we go. So this pretty much accurately describes me. When we first got married, Matt would come home and he would ask me, hey, how are you doing? I would say, I'm fine. And he would happily carry on with whatever he was doing. Those of you in the room who are married know that's not a good idea. After nine years of marriage, Matt has come to realize that when I say I'm fine, it means the total opposite of I'm fine. In fact, it is as far away from as fi I'm fine as that could possibly be. It means danger, and it will predictably be followed by tears or anger if action is not instituted immediately. So, in preparing for this sermon, I realized that I actually had the same attitude towards grace. I'm fine, no thanks, don't need it. But I didn't understand fully what it was that I was saying no to. So I tried to figure it out. What exactly is grace? There are many definitions of it, but the actual word in the New Testament, Greek word, says charis, which means the favor, blessing, or kindness. So grace is God's unmerited favor, blessing, or kindness that he bestows upon us. It's something that we receive from God, not something that we achieve. A better understanding comes from John 1, verse 17, which says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus embodies grace. And therefore, his interactions with people is grace outworked. I think that those of us who are saved probably understand the grace required for our salvation, that Jesus was a sin offering for us and he gave us righteousness for free in exchange. But do we understand how much we still need it 
after salvation. I didn't. For me, grace has been kind of a platitude that we dole out to people when they mess up. So when someone's late for a meeting or don't get, doesn't get their work done on time, we say, oh, don't worry, there's grace. That was what grace was for me. Grace was kind of like this dog. And we'll see if that comes up. <laughs> yes, technically a dog, but essentially <laughs> useless as a dog. I'm sorry, if a dog has to be carried around in a handbag, what good is that? But in reality, grace is like this. It's a pit bull, okay? It's fierce, it's powerful, it's all-loving, it's all-consuming, it's tenacious. It grabs hold of us and it doesn't let us go. That's grace. Before you knew God, grace pursued you. After you know God, grace sustains you and grace protects you. The only appropriate response to grace and, by the way, to a pit bull, is to surrender, to fully, fully surrender to its power. It's very ironic to me that my personality traits are the very things that I see in my kids that annoy me the most. There are many times that I sit with my three-year-old daughter, and I can see her struggling with the task. She's trying to put on her shoes or tie a chain or something like that, and I'm like, please, can Mama help you for my own nerve's sake? And she looks at me and she says, no, I can do it myself. I wonder how many times God comes alongside us and asks, my child, by my grace, please can I help you with this? And we say, no, I can do it myself. That's why I love this encounter that we're going to go through today. This woman realized that she was not fine, that she could not do it by herself. And in that place of humility and need, Jesus meets her there. His grace comes to her, radically sets her free, ends her suffering, and affirms her. We're going to explore how surrendering to this grace can transform our experiences in four key areas, namely that of our own sufferings or struggles, in the sharing of our faith, in how we seek him before we even become a believer, and, how, and, and in our striving for affirmation. We pick up the encounter in Mark 5. When Jesus has just freed a man from a legion of demons, he's crossed over the lake and a large crowd has gathered around him. Jairus, one of the synagogue rulers, has come to Jesus and said, my daughter is dying, will you please come to my house and pray for her and heal her? So Jesus is on his way towards a noble task. So we're going to read the whole scripture and then go through it afterwards. Stay with me. This is good stuff, okay, because it's God's word. A crowd followed Jesus and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject for bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking. He kept looking around to see who had done it. 
Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and with trembling and fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. As a woman, you probably understand the inconvenience and oftentimes pain associated with menstruation. As a man, you probably feel that you suffer more when your spouse or loved one is undergoing the veritable joys of PMS. But jokes aside, what this woman was going through was not just inconvenient or painful. It was physical and psychological suffering. According to Jewish law, menstrual bleeding made you ceremonially unclean. And in Leviticus 15 verse 25, it says, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, she will be unclean for as long as she has the discharge. Any bed she lies on will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her will be unclean. Moreover, you are not allowed to enter the synagogue or read the Torah. Anyone who happened to be touched by her or who had touched anything she had touched, in order to make themselves clean again, they had to bathe their whole body and wash their clothes and still would be considered unclean until midnight. The only way for this woman to be declared clean once more is for her bleeding to stop and then seven days later present herself to the priest with a burnt offering which would be offered on her behalf by the priest as an atonement to make sure that she is now declared clean. Let's put ourselves in this woman's shoes for a moment. Can you imagine what it must have been like for 12 years to be told that you are unclean? Knowing that just by touching someone else, you made them unclean. That if they touched you, you made them unclean. Not being allowed to enter the synagogue to worship with everyone else. People probably avoided her for fear of being made unclean. She had spoken over her time and time again. Unclean, unclean, unclean. She was likely despised, rejected, and held in low esteem. She then seeks the help of doctors, hoping that they could heal her, only to suffer even more as they tried various remedies on her. I can only imagine in that day and age what the kind of remedies for bleeding would be like. She spends every penny she has, and instead of getting better, she gets worse. She had reached her capacity, financially, physically, and emotionally. She was suffering, and she couldn't fix it on her own. Are you perhaps in the same boat? Discouraged and at the end of your capacity, have you been putting up a brave face and pretending that it's all okay, when actually it's not? I have. This past year has been the most difficult year of my life. I have stood by and watched as loved ones suffered, and I stood there completely powerless to help them. I have had old wounds opened up, and it's hurt. It's hurt badly. I've experienced what it is to see how cruel man can be to another person, and it has shaken me. It has caused me to doubt. I questioned, is God really good? Does he care? And is he real? Even verbalizing this doubt seemed like heresy. The narrative in my head said it is not done to express this doubt. It's not okay for an elder's wife. 
It's not okay for someone who's been a Christian for a long time. It's not okay for someone who's a mother and supposed to lead her children into faith. It's not okay to have these doubts and to struggle in this way. That was not the voice of my father. That was the voice of the enemy seeking to isolate me. So I succumbed. I kept quiet. I didn't want others to know I was struggling in case they judged me or deemed me weak. When Matt asked if I was okay, I would say my classic, I'm fine. I thought that I was disappointing God by struggling and somehow failing in my faith by doubting him. But doubt and discouragement don't scare Jesus. He knows us. He knows that we cannot manufacture genuine faith. When Thomas is discouraged and, Jesus has, and he thinks that Jesus has died and he doubts that Jesus has in fact been resurrected, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says in John 20 verse 27, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas needed in his moment of doubt. He could have said to Thomas, go read the scriptures about me, go read the prophecies, go speak to the disciples who have seen me and ask them to tell you. But instead, he gave Thomas what he needed, himself, the person of Jesus Christ. He pointed to the scars that he endured for Thomas. He's pointed to the suffering that he endured for Thomas. The cost of grace paid for by Jesus, demonstrated by scars on the body of Christ. God is compassionate and loving. His grace does not condemn us when we doubt or when we suffer. His compassion meets us there and pulls us out. If only we would ask him. If only we would humble ourselves enough to say, we don't have this, we're not okay. It's okay to struggle with discouragement and faithlessness. Maybe you're here today and you need to hear it said out loud. It's okay. You are not condemned. You haven't failed or been disqualified. We have just been aware, made aware of why we need the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. One of our core values at Church in the City is that of family. And real families share their victories and their struggles. So we need to be able to be real with one another. I needed, and eventually did, reach out to others to pray for me. It started me on a journey of healing and of removing burdens from me one by one. He can do that for you today. He can do that right where you're sitting if you just open yourself up to him in this moment. God can come with his compassion. He can sovereignly meet you in your place of suffering and doubt and instantly transform you. He can do it through ministries like Rooted in Christ. He can do it in prayer times after the service. What you need to know is he can do it and he wants to do it. That's what he wants to do with us today. That's grace, his desire to heal us and set us free. So this woman has been suffering and the next line says that in her place of discouragement, she says when she heard about Jesus. But what had she heard? She had heard about the man who taught in the synagogue with authority, who drove out demons from people, who healed the sick, and ate at the house of sinners and tax collectors. It was these testimonies told to her by others that gave her a glimmer of hope to reach out and seek Jesus. Just enough faith to find him. Sometimes that's all someone needs is an introduction 
and we can be the ones to give it to them. Revelations 12:11 says, they have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Testimony is key to overcoming the schemes of the devil, and I think that's why he attacks evangelism. It used to be that whenever someone mentioned the word evangelism, I would cringe. It was fraught with this weight and this obligation and heaviness for me. I would say to myself, I don't know the Bible off by heart. I really hate small talk. And I can't engage in arguments about the different theology of the age. In my own strength, I disqualified myself from sharing my faith because I had put on myself the burden of the outcome of the sharing of my faith. I didn't want to tell someone about Jesus because if they didn't get saved after I told them, then somehow I had failed. It was my doing and my power that determined whether or not they came to salvation. So instead of risking failure, I decided I'm going to leave it to other people, like the full-time people, like James and Steve. (laughs) But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, more than anyone else, had the ability to argue theology and speak with authority. Yet that's not what he used when he shared Christ. He simply proclaimed the testimony about God and made known the person of Jesus to people. Have any of you seen the Dos Equis commercial about the most interesting man in the world? He has all sorts of talents and clever little quips that they put up on, the t- on their commercials. He has won the Lifetime Achievement Award twice. He is left-handed and right-handed. And my personal favorite, he lives vicariously through himself. <laughs> how easy would it be to introduce this guy to someone at a party? I don't know how to help you, but hey, I know this dude and he can do everything. But that's what evangelism is. It's introducing someone to a person and that person happens to be Jesus. It's all about taking the pressure off of ourselves of the outcome of that introduction and just making the introduction. It's God's grace to us that we don't have to control what happens beyond the point of introduction. His grace does the saving. Some sow, some water, but God causes the plant to grow. You may say that sounds too easy, Sheetal. Bet that doesn't work in reality. Trust me, it does. A few weeks ago, I was seeing a 50-year-old man in the hospital who had been admitted with a massive blood clot in his lungs. This is something that could have easily killed him. He was previously very healthy and, in fact, took great pride in the fact that he was healthy. So the fact that he was in the hospital had completely undone him. He didn't understand how, having had such great control over his health, he could now be in this position of life-threatening illness. Moreover, he had no insurance, so he had no way of paying for the expensive CT scans, medications, and blood work that he needed both in the hospital and outside the hospital in the months to come. I could sense that he was desperate, and he was looking to me to provide solutions and answers that I could not. I genuinely felt God's compassion for this man and his suffering. And I wanted to do something. But what? I'm going to let you into a little secret if you promise not to judge me. And we've said that we're all family, so this is safe space. 
Sometimes, very rarely, when I'm in a patient's room and they're very talkative or the family is very difficult and I feel like I maybe want to leave, I have learned how to press the buttons on my pager to make them beep so it looks as though I am being paged. <laughs> Full disclosure. So with just a few little clicks of the button, it'll start going off and I'll be like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I've been paged. I'd love to stay, but I really have to go and make my exit. It's kind of a little bit of a safety net. I immediately repent straight afterwards, just so you know. So, <laughs> full disclosure, right? So I told this man that, hey, I don't have the answers that you need, but I know someone who does. I believe in Jesus, and I believe that he's powerful, and he can provide for you and give you comfort, all the while with my hand on my page and knowing that I had an exit strategy. Um, so it gave me a little bit of confidence. To my surprise, he said, yes, I would like you to pray with for me. So right then and there, I just prayed a very simple prayer with him, asking for God's encouragement, his peace, and his provision for him in that moment. I left very quickly thereafter so that I wouldn't have to answer any questions. Um, just being real. As I was walking down the passageway towards the nurse's station, I suddenly realized, hey, he mentioned that he had been in the military many years ago. Long story short, we realized that he was eligible for veterans' benefits and that every single one of his tests, his medication, and his blood work would be completely covered at no expense to him whatsoever. The next day, I walked into this man's room, and he greeted me with the hugest smile. He looked visibly brighter and unburdened, and I knew that God had met him in that place, and he knew that Jesus was the one who provided for him. I don't know if he ever came to salvation, but the, that's not the point that matters. The point is that God gave me the grace to step out, and whether or not he gets saved, that's between him and God. This woman was started on a journey of freedom because she heard about Jesus. She would never have heard if someone hadn't told her. We can be that someone for others if we take the pressure off the outcome off of us and live in a place of grace. So after she hears about Jesus, she moves through the crowd to try and get to him. She comes up behind him, and some translations say she touched the hem of his garment, which means that she had to have been on the ground or close to it, a position of timidity and humility, not the position of someone with great faith and confidence. Immediately, Jesus recognizes that a measure of faith or expectation has come into contact with his power. And in the midst of the crowd, he stops to seek her out. Look at the heart of the shepherd seeking out the one lost sheep. This is grace in action. All that Jesus requires is for us to seek him in some way. We don't have to know for certain that he will heal us. We don't have to be certain that he will save us or set us free. We just need to have enough faith to reach out. His grace meets us there. In fact, it's his very grace that give us, gives us the inclination to seek him in the first place. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, writes this analogy. Imagine that you are falling off a cliff, and sticking out of the cliff is a branch that is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab that branch. How much faith do you have to have in that branch to save you? 
Must you be totally sure that it can save you? Of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab it. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch, all that matters is the branch, and Jesus Christ is that branch. After the woman is healed, she approaches him with fear and trembling. Why would she be scared? Well, apart from the previous laws which stated that she was ceremonially unclean, in Jewish culture, women were not allowed to touch rabbis. You were not allowed to shake their hands. You were not allowed to walk right next to them. You had to walk behind them. And now, this woman who was unclean had touched a rabbi, and he had also been made unclean by her. One thing that confused me is that Jesus knows this. He knows that she's unclean. He knows what she's walked through. Why would he then make her share her story publicly? Essentially, her being publicly humiliated. But by publicly acknowledging her taboo state, Jesus publicly stated that it doesn't matter to him. With the, what the religious would have shunned, Jesus embraced. He then makes it clear to the entire crowd and to her that it was not her righteousness or her cleanness that saved her or the physical power within his cloak. It was her faith in him. Then she is instantly healed and set free. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that the hem of Christ's garment is better than all the robes of philosophy. Our faith needs to be centered on the person of Jesus Christ, not intellectual argument. You don't need to have it all figured out or be in a good and righteous place before you give your life to Jesus. If you are struggling to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, perhaps you need to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. When he does, because he will, reach out and grab onto him, just like that branch. Then let his grace take care of the rest. He is both willing and able to catch you. I'm sure that after she heard of her story, she was bracing herself to be rebuked by him. She was a social pariah who had defiled the cleanliness of a rabbi and broken religious and cultural law. Can you imagine if she had done this to a Pharisee and made the Pharisee unclean? But in this place of fear and trembling, what was Jesus' response to her? He looks at her and he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. She was being claimed by Jesus in that moment, not as a slave, but as a daughter. We all know those moments when a graduate walks across the stage and their parents are sitting in the audience and they stand up and they start shouting, yeah, that's my daughter, that's my son, they're mine. That can be quite embarrassing for the graduate on the stage, but something, something within them also says, yes, I am theirs. It's deep, it's settling, it's securing to them to know that someone has claimed them as their own and accepted them just the way they are, loved and appreciated them. If I'm being truly honest, and today seems to be like disclosure day for me. Um, my name is Sheetal, and I'm an alcoholic. No, I'm sorry. 
I'm being truly honest, my independence and self-sufficiency comes from a place of deep insecurity. It comes out of a need to constantly prove myself, to prove that I'm worthy to be loved. Because if I can't do things perfectly on my own or succeed in everything, then why would someone love me? Why would someone simply want to be with me? So I constantly spent my life striving to do more, to be more, which, let me tell you, is exhausting because you will never be enough and you will never do enough to feel settled. I thought that when I became a doctor and I was claimed by a noble profession, that that would be enough. I thought that when I was married and I was claimed as someone's wife, that that would be enough. I thought that when I had Naraya and I was claimed as her mother, that that would be enough. But it wasn't. It was never enough. None of it was enough because only one voice claiming me as daughter, just the way I am, flaws and all, without a single merit to my name, only one voice, the voice of the father saying, you are my daughter, that was the only voice that would settle me. That was the only voice that would bring me peace and that would bring an end to my striving. That is what the grace of God does for us. It puts an end to striving. It stops it dead in its tracks. And it says and it declares what we already are in him. Grace says, here is my favor, here is my love, here is my acceptance, here is my peace, here is my freedom. It is yours, it is here, and it's yours forever. That's what grace says. We just have to receive it. I believe that Jesus is reminding that of us, reminding us of that today. He's saying to each one of us who know him, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are free, you have my grace. You don't have to work for my favor anymore. This encounter that this woman has with Jesus is a beautiful picture of grace that salvation is founded on. In comparison to a holy, perfect God, all of us are unclean. We can try everything to make ourselves unclean, clean again. We can spend every penny that we have, give everything that we have, and we will always fall short from achieving that. Only when we recognize this, only when we recognize that the world can only point out our unclean state, just like the law did for this woman, and the, that the law is powerless to remedy that state, then only do we recognize that we need Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Jesus was made to be just like this woman, unclean, suffering, and rejected, so that we could be made just like him a child of God, righteous in God's sight. The same exchange is available to us right now so that we can be called sons and daughters too. This is grace. We've heard what grace is and how it outworks, but how do we actually receive it? And I apologize, this slide didn't make it on the presentation. So what are the ways in which we can receive grace or work our lives through grace. One is we need to recognize that we need it 
we need to stop saying, I'm fine, because we're not. Secondly, we need to understand that grace is powerful. Grace is a pit bull. Thirdly, we need to know that we actually already have it, that we've received it and we haven't achieved it. And fourthly, we need to surrender to it. Ask the Holy Spirit to overwhelm you by the grace of Jesus Christ, to come and to take you and to carry you in moments where you cannot walk, to give you supernatural giftings, to carry the word of God beyond just yourself, to supernaturally set you free, to supernaturally bless you and give you favor. Ask, and he will do it. Okay. The whole while that Cheetle was preaching, I just kept having this word, the, the word that just kept coming to mind was surrender, surrender, surrender. And I think Cheetle summed it up absolutely perfectly at the end. And uh, I'm going to invite us to respond to Cheetle's message by doing exactly that, for us all to surrender to the grace of God this morning. Every person here, I am absolutely certain, is in need of God's grace in some area or in some aspect of your life. And I say that not as a prophet, but as a man who knows, a person who knows what it is like to live this side of eternity. We need the grace of God every single day. And I do think sometimes we are, exactly as Sheetal said, the person who says, I'm fine, or through our striving, we try to outrun or, or not need the grace of God. And I feel today we need, we need to allow the grace of God to, to catch up to us, to overwhelm us, and to empower us. And so can I ask just right now, if we can just close our eyes and be in a position to receive this morning. And I'm going to ask Sheetal to pray for God's grace to overwhelm us. And as she's praying, can I invite you just to be surrendering in that area that you are struggling with? in that issue or position or thing that has always been the one thing that is holding you back, let's today trust that that comes to an end. Let's today trust that transformation happens and that breakthrough comes by the grace of God. Father, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for your compassion. I thank you, Father, that you are here. You are here with us now, Lord God, and I thank you, for your grace, Lord God, that finds us, that pursues us, Lord God, and that overwhelms us, Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that right now, Father God, every single one of your sons and daughters would know Jesus, to, would know what it is to be overwhelmed by your grace, to be overcome by your grace, Father, to be filled up to overflowing with grace, Lord God. I pray that the power of grace and the power of your love would break struggles, right now, in Jesus' name, that there would be freedom bought, Father, where there was bondage, Father, in your name, Lord God, because of your love, because of your favor, Lord Jesus. I pray for the grace of God to put an end of, to striving, Jesus. Where there's a lack of self-worth, I break that off in the name of Jesus by your grace, which says that we are loved right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you come, Father, to set us free to set us free, Lord God. I pray that as we leave this place, Lord God, that this would be the start of just such an awareness of your grace, 
Lord God, in every step that we take, we would be aware of your favor, of your blessing, and of your kindness in our lives. Let it flow out of us, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. 